0: Hello and welcome to History Hooked. This week, we're going to take a look at the Crusades, and in particular, the first Crusade. We're going to talk about who was involved, why it happened, and what was the ultimate outcome, basically, of it. Now, to begin with this episode, we're just going to have a little historical context on and why it happened. So The history of conflict between Christianity and Islam dates back to the 7th century. Muslim invaders had taken over Jerusalem and the Levant, and even landed it in Spain within a century of the death of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. However, the Reconquista, which consisted of Christian kingdoms waging military campaigns against the Moors, gradually weakened Islamic control of Spain by the 11th century. The Fatimid dynasty ruled North Africa and parts of Western Asia in relative peace with the West until the loss of Jerusalem to the Seljuk dynasty in 1073. The Seljuks, a Sunni Muslim dynasty of Ogo's Turkic origin, established the Seljuk empire in 1037 and were the main target of the First Crusade. Their empire spanned from Ran to Anatolia at its height and contributed to the Turco Persian tradition in the medieval Middle East and Central Asia. The First Crusade was a response from the Christian world to stop the spread of Islam led by the Fatimids and the Seljuks, who we just mentioned. And it was to stop them basically uh, into the Holy Land and Byzantium now jerusalem was increasingly seen as deserving of penitential pilgrimages in western europe now despite the seljuk hold on jerusalem being weak at the time returning pilgrims reported christian oppression and difficulties and the city changed hands several times between the seljuks and the fatimids in august of 1098 the fatimids regained control of the city and ruled it for just under a year after seizing the opportunity presented by the approaching First Crusade. At the same time, the Byzantine Empire really needed military support, and the willingness of the Western European warrior class, as they were called, uh, to accept papal military command increased at the time. Now, to get into a bit more detail as well of why it happened, we, we're going to have to look at the situation in Europe at the time and in the 11th century, Europe experienced a significant population growth thanks to technological and agricultural advancements, which paved the way for flourishing trade and environments. The influence of the Catholic Church on Western civilization was immense, shaping the society's political systems around manorialism and feudalism. In these systems, knights and nobles provided military service to their overlords in exchange for the ability to rent lands and manors. Between 1050 and 1080, the Gregorian Reform movement became more aggressive in its policies, aiming to increase its power and influence. However, this led to conflict with Eastern Christians who believed in papal supremacy. The eastern church saw the pope as one of the five patriarchs of the church together with the Patriarchates of alexandria antioch constantinople and jerusalem in 1054 differences in custom creed and practice led pope leo the to send a delegation to the patriarch of constantinople as a result mutual excommunication occurred and an east-west schism emerged and back in the early days of christianity violence was sometimes used as the church sought for the greater good of the community as roman citizenship and christianity became intertwined a christian theology of war began to take shape roman citizens were expected to fight against the empire's enemies theologian augustine of hippo writing in the 4th century, discussed the concept of holy war. He believed that while aggressive war was sinful, war could be justified under certain circumstances. Now, according to Augustine, war could be proclaimed by a legitimate authority, such as a king or bishop, and had to be either defensive or for the recovery of lands. Furthermore, it could not involve excessive violence. The breakdown of the, what it was called at the time, Carolingian Empire in Western Europe led to a warrior caste who resorted to fighting amongst themselves, basically. Now, violent acts were often used to settle disputes that the papacy attempted to resolve. Pope Alexander II established systems for recruiting soldiers through oaths, which were later expanded across Europe by Gregory VII. These methods were used by the church during conflicts between Christians and Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula, as well as during the Norman conquest of Sicily. In 1074, Gregory VII planned to demonstrate military power to reinforce the principle of papal sovereignty in a holy war supporting Byzantium against the Seljuks, but he was unsuccessful in gaining enough support. Theologian Anselm of Lucca took a crucial step towards an authentic crusader ideology by stating that fighting for legitimate purposes could lead to the remission of sins. Now in the year 711, a battle took place in Catalonia that was backed by Pope Alexander II. It was considered a holy war, but it was different from the first crusade because there was no pilgrimage vow or formal authorization from the church. However, indulgences were granted to the participants. And interestingly, shortly before the First Crusade, Pope Urban II encouraged Iberian Christians to take Tarragona using similar symbolism and rhetoric that was later used to preach the Crusade to the people of Europe. But that's not all. Before the First Crusade, The Italo Normans, they were called Italian Normans, were able to conquer a significant portion of southern Italy and Sicily from the Byzantines and North African Arabs. As a result, they faced opposition from the papacy, and Pope Leo IX launched a campaign against them. However, the Italo Normans emerged victorious at a place called Sibitet, and in 1059 they invaded Muslim Sicily under the banner of St. Peter also known as the Invexilum Sancti Petriora. And to top it off, Robert Guiscard went on to capture the Byzantine city of Bari in 1071 and conducted campaigns along the eastern Adriatic coast near a place called Diracium in 1088 and 1085. So that was the situation in Europe at the time. Now let's take a look at the situation in the east. The Byzantine Empire was a true powerhouse in its time, with wealth, culture, and military might at its disposal. Basil II, who was the leader who took the empire to its peak in 1025, expanding its borders to Iran, while also controlling Bulgaria and much of southern Italy. The Mediterranean Sea was cleared of piracy, and the empire enjoyed relatively stable relations with its Islamic neighbours, as well as other groups like the Slavs and Western Christians. However, the empire still faced stiff competition from various groups, including the Normans in Italy, Pechenegs, Serbs, Cumans in the north, and the Seljuk Turks in the east. Now, to deal with these challenges, the emperor sometimes went as far as hiring mercenaries even from their enemies to deal, well, with their enemies. The Islamic world also has a rich history that spans centuries and is full of fascinating stories. Arab and Turkic history became, became intertwined in the 9th century with the first waves of Turkic migration into the Middle East. Later, in the 10th century, the Seljuk Turks arrived and they were unlike anything the region had seen before. These nomads spoke Turkish and sometimes practiced shamanism, which was very different from their Arabic speaking sedentary subjects. This difference weakened power structures, and the Seljuks' governance of the territory was based on political preferment and competition between independent princes rather than geography. In 1071, The Byzantine Empire suffered a significant setback at the Battle of Manzikert when they were defeated by the Seljuks. This defeat was the foreshadowing of notable Seljuk gains and contributed to the call for the First Crusade. Key cities such as Nicaea and Antioch were lost in 1081 and 1086 respectively, which were famous in the West due to their historical significance. The Crusader armies later targeted these cities for reconquest, which we will get into next week. Now, after the deaths of Nizam al-Mulk, Malik Shah and al-Mustansir Billah, the Islamic world, was divided, with Khalij Arslan and Tutus I taking over in Anatolia and Syria. Syria became further divided among emirs while Egypt and Palestine were controlled by the Fatimids. Just before the arrival of the Crusaders, the Fatimids regained control of Jerusalem from the Atu, kids, who were a smaller tribe associated with the Seljuks, which were already mentioned. Now, to talk a little bit of the Council of Claremont. The year was 1095, and the Holy Land was in turmoil. The invading Turks were advancing into the Byzantine Emperor's territory, causing panic and desperation. That's when the Council of Piacenza and the Council of Clermont stepped in, both held by Pope Urban II. He saw an opportunity to unite the Church and heal the great schism by assisting the Eastern Churches in their time of need. Byzantine Emperor Alexius I Comlinos sent envoys to the Council of Piacenza requesting aid against the Turks. And Pope Urban II responded positively, and there was considerable cooperation between Rome and Constantinople in the years leading up to the Crusade. In 1095, oh, in July 1095, Pope Urban II went to France to recruit men for the expedition. He spoke to a large audience of French novels and clergy at the Council of Clermont, giving an impassioned sermon. Now, five versions of his speech were recorded by people who either attended the council or went on the crusade, as well as other versions found in the works of later historians. However, all of these versions were written after Jerusalem had been captured. Now, that's very, I think, important to North because it's a, it's it's not a primary, basically, location of it. It's not a primary source, so it is secondary source there, so you cannot rely 100% on it. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's what made it so difficult as well to determine what was actually said and what was recreated after the successful crusade. Now, the only contemporary records are a few letters written by Pope Urban in 1095, and it's believed that Urban may have preached the crusade at uh, Piazienza as well, but the only record of this is found in uh, Bernard of St. Blaise's chronicon. With the five different versions of Urban's famous speech, each one has its own unique details but they all share some common themes. One of the most important things that Urban talked about was the need to maintain peace in a violent world. He also spoke about the urgent need to help the Greeks, who had reached out for assistance, and the terrible crimes that were being committed against Christians in the East. Perhaps most famously, Urban proposed a new kind of warfare. An armed pilgrimage that would offer heavenly rewards and the remission of sins to those who died in the process. While not all versions of the speech specifically mention Jerusalem, some scholars have pointed out that Urban's subsequent preaching suggests that he always intended for the expedition to end up there. In fact, in one version of the speech, the crowd was so enthusiastic that they shouted out, "Deus la volt, which means God's will. Are simply, people also say at the time, Jews' vault. For any of you who know a bit of French, you would realize that yes, it is French. Now we're going to talk about probably one of the biggest recruiters for the Crusade by a man called Peter the Hermit. Now, according to historical accounts, Peter, who was not officially sanctioned as a preacher by Pope Urban at Clermont had a following that is said to have been comprised predominantly of untrained and illiterate peasants, who were believed to have had little to no knowledge of where Jerusalem was even located. However, it is worth noting that there were also many knights who fought alongside these peasants, including Walter, sons of who served as Peter's lieutenant and led a separate army. Despite the disparity in their backgrounds and levels of training, They all united under the same cause. As Peter's army made its way through unfamiliar Eastern European territory, they quickly learned the importance of military discipline. Despite being in Christian territory, they sometimes found themselves in hot water, with Walter's army even clashing with the Hungarians over food at Belgrade. And to make matters worse, when they arrived at Nisht, Peter struggled to control his followers. And byzantine troops had to step in to stop their attacks despite these challenges peter's army eventually made it to constantinople with the joint forces with walter's army as well as groups of crusaders from france germany and italy now just a fun fact for today in the first crusade a lot of people don't notice but they weren't actually known as crusaders at the time They were usually known as poor fellows of the cross and so on so officially at the time of the first crusade they were not officially called crusaders that wasn't until later okay so just keep that in mind but i'll just use them i will just reference the word crusaders just to make things more i think to clarify things easier for you okay so unfortunately for peter's army another army of bohemians and saxons never made it past hungary before splitting up Maybe just to say, to hell with this, it's not worth it. No one knows. Now, Alexius had to act fast. Alexius Communist first. He had to act fast when Peter and Walter's unruly group went on rampage outside the city, looking for supplies and food. He quickly transported them across the Bosporus into Asia Minor. Now, it is important to note that Peter and the smaller armies moved into Asia Minor before the other men, Noble, armies arrived in Constantinople which we will get into very shortly now once they were there the crusaders split up and started pillaging the countryside but they soon found themselves in Seljuk territory around Nicaea or Nicaea depends on who you're talking to with the pronunciation there now the experienced Turks massacred most of the group however despite the setback some Italian and German crusaders continued on only to to be defeated at a place called Zuri Garden a few weeks later. Walter and Peter's followers, who were mostly untrained in battle, but had about 50 knights leading them, fought bravely against the Turks at the Battle of Sivitot a month later. But the Turkish archers destroyed the Crusader army, and Walter lost his life. Peter, who was not present during the Battle of Sivitot, later joined the second wave of crusaders along with the few survivors of the battle. And this second wave of crusaders is what I just said a minute ago. We'll talk about them now in a minute. It was a devastating experience for all involved, but the determination to continue on with the crusade remained strong. During the First Crusade, Coloman of Hungary had to deal with a major headache caused by the armies, marching through his kingdom towards the Holy Land in 1096. He had to take on two crusader hordes that were pillaging the area and wreaking havoc. Now, despite their persistence, their persistence, Coloman emerged victorious and even managed to defeat Emichio's army as well. Eventually, Emichio's followers dispersed, and some even joined the main armies. However, Emichio himself decided to head back home. Maybe he had the same idea as the Saxons, Bohemians we were just talking about. Interestingly, the attackers were not only interested in acquiring money from the Jews, but also wanted to force them to convert. And it's also important to note that the church hierarchy's official policy for crusading never allowed for physical violence against Jews. That being said, some of the Christian bishops, such, such as the Bishop of Cologne, did their best to protect the Jews from any harm. In fact, a decade prior to this event, the Bishop of Speyer even provided a walled ghetto to protect the Jews of that city from any Christian violence. The chief rabbis were even given control of judicial matters in their quarter. However, it's worth noting also that some bishops took money in return for their protection. The attacks may have originated from the belief that Jews and Muslims were equal enemies of Christ and therefore needed to be either fought, killed, or converted to Christianity. Now we're going to talk about the travel as well from Claremont to Constantinople for the other armies that I was talking about, are the second wave. This group or these groups were not with Peter the Hermit. So in August 1096 the four main crusader armies embarked on their journey from europe the interesting part is that they each took different routes to reach their destination which was constantinople some went through eastern europe and the balkans while others crossed the adriatic sea coloman of hungary was kind enough to let godfrey and his troops pass through hungary but only after his brother baldwin was taken as a hostage to ensure Good behaviour this time round. The armies finally met up outside the walls of Constantinople between November 1096 and April 1097. Hugh of Vermandois was the first to arrived, followed by Godfrey, Raymond and Beaumont. Let's talk about a little bit of the recruitment process as well in Europe. The recruitment process stretched entirely across the continent. The number of Crusader armies has been estimated to be around 70 to 80,000, with even more joining in the three year duration. The number of knights is estimated to be between 7 to 10,000, and 35 to approximately 50,000 foot soldiers. With non combatants included, the total number of participants ranged from 60 to 100,000. The speech given by Urban was carefully planned and had the support of two of southern France's most significant leaders, Ademeyer of La Puy and Raymond IV, Count of Toulouse. Ademeyer attended the council and was the first to take the cross. Urban then spread the message throughout France and urged his bishops and legates to do the same in their own dioceses in France, Germany, and italy the response to his speech was much greater than anticipated and despite urban's attempt to discourage certain groups from joining such as women monks and the sick it was clear that the response was overwhelming most who responded were not wealthy skilled knights but peasants who were driven by emotional and personal piety which was not easily controlled by the aristocracy Preaching typically concluded with every volunteer taking a vow to complete a pilgrimage to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and they were given a cross to wear on their clothes. Now, The motivations of the multitude of participants in the Crusades are difficult to evaluate given the lack of historical accounts. However, it's likely that personal piety played a significant role for many of the Crusaders, and despite this popular enthusiasm, Urban managed to assemble a formidable army of knights from the French aristocracy. Some of the key leaders he recruited include Beaumont of Taranto, an uh, ally of the reform popes, as well as Godfrey of Bouillon, who had previously been an anti-reform ally of the Holy Roman Emperor. The Crusaders hailed from different regions, including northern and southern France, Flanders, Germany and southern Italy. They were divided into four separate armies that were not always cooperative, maybe for the language barrier, the culture barrier and so on, but they were united by their common ultimate goal. The crusade was no small feat, led by some of the most powerful nobles of France who left everything behind, even entire families who embarked on the journey at their own great expense. Robert of Normandy even loaned his duchy to his brother, William II of England, and Godfrey had to sell or Mortgage his property to the church. Tancred, one of the crusade leaders, was worried about the sinful nature of knightly warfare and was excited to find a holy outlet for violence. Interestingly, Tancred and Beaumont, along with Godfrey, Baldwin, and their older brothers, Eustace III, Count of Bolin, are examples of families who crusaded together. Most of the French crusaders were distant relatives, but family relations played an important role in their enthusiasm for the crusade. However, personal advancement was not entirely absent from the crusaders' motives. For instance, Beaumont was motivated by the desire to carve himself out of territory in the east and had previously campaigned against the Byzantines to try to achieve this. The crusade gave him a further opportunity, which he took after the siege of Antioch, taking possession of the city and establishing the Principality of Antioch which we will get more into next week. Arriving at Constantinople, the second wave. Now, Upon the arrival at Constantinople, the armies were in dire need of food and supplies, hoping for assistance from Alexius. Understandably, Alexius was wary due to his past experience with the People's Crusade with Peter the Hermit. Moreover, the inclusion of his old forebomb who had invaded byzantine territory on multiple occasions with his father and it was even rumoured to have planned an attack on constantinople while camped outside the city only added to alexius's uh, suspicions nevertheless this time round alexius was more prepared for the crusaders resulting in fewer incidents of violence along the way tensions were high in the city as the citizens and crusaders were on the brink of war they just didn't get along simple as that the crusaders were desperate for supplies and pillaging seemed like the only option however raymond stood out from the rest by refusing to swear an oath instead he vowed not to cause any harm to the empire before crossing the bosporus alexius gave the leaders valuable advice on how to handle the upcoming encounter with the seljuk armies it was a critical moment. And everyone knew that their fate was in their hands. Next week, we'll be following the path of the Crusaders, particularly the second wave, as they venture into Asia Minor in the first half of 1097 and experience their significant battles. As always, thank you very much for listening. And also, you can always follow me on Instagram at a History Hooked Podcast where you can be updated with the newest podcasts that are available you can follow me anytime you can also sign up to the email subscription on my website www.historyhook.com for the latest news not just podcasts but blog posts and so on so yeah feel free to do that history hooked podcast thank you again for listening and as always catch you in the next episode